And now I am delighted to introduce today's speaker. Dr. James Coven is an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Oregon Health and Science University. He's passionate about teaching as well as integrating physical and mental health care. Dr. Covid received training at the Keck School of Medicine at the University of Southern California, did his internship in general pediatrics at the University of California, Davis, and then residency in psychiatry at University of Washington in Seattle. He currently serves as the medical director of psychiatric emergency services at the Unity Center for Behavioral Health, as well as psychiatric consultant for an integrated care clinic within OHSU's Family Medicine Division. We're so delighted to have you with us today, and I will turn it over to you, Dr. Cohen. Good morning, all. Thank you so much for being here. It's 8 a.m. It's a drizzly, like gray Tuesday. It's after Halloween. It's like a post candy hangover, and you're here, and I'm so appreciative of y'all. So thank you, uh, and thank you for the introduction. Um, today we are talking about anxiety. Anxiety is real and I'm really excited to be with y'all. I don't have any financial interest to disclose. I wanted to tell you a little bit about who I am. Uh, many of you, I don't know. I'm primarily over here at OHSU. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry. I teach a smattering of medical students, residents, nurse practitioners. PAs, as well as uh, some physicians in our CME department. And then clinically, I work here at Unity. As you may know, Unity is our major, is one of our major psychiatric emergency centers here. We have a 40-bed emergency center and then 100 inpatient beds. Um, and I'm the medical director of our emergency services line here. I want to talk about a couple of things with y'all today, where our main goals are going to be to kind of talk about differentiating types of anxiety, and then practice ways to help conceptualize and manage some anxiety. And to get actually a little bit more at this, and this may be pretty fundamental, but anxious people cause anxiety. When I work with folks working in medicine, both in the hospital and in the primary care settings, there's this is a really challenging group of people to work with. And a lot of the thoughts I think are sometimes difficult to even acknowledge or disclose because of this idea that physicians just have to be there and work with everyone. But when you see somebody that comes in with a, a like primary complaint of anxiety or, or they just look really anxious, it's really common for a lot of these thoughts to like bubble up for us pretty intensely. Things like, Ugh, this is gonna take a long time or like nothing's gonna calm this person down or like, whatever you suggest, they're gonna say no, or they're just gonna want a benzo. And it's it's stressful, This this and it truly, it can take a long time and it's, 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 it's hard. And I've seen this, I feel this myself, and I know that y'all feel this too. And so to maybe be a little bit more, uh, you know, realistic about our goals and expectations, my goal is in other words, to help you do this, like, chill out, like take your, you know, like take a benzo, just kidding. Because what I what I want is actually like, are there ways to help people quickly without just telling them to like chill out or without just that didn't, without involving just prescribing Ativan? I think in other words, what I really want to do is offer you some help. And what I also want to be kind of upfront, today's talk isn't really about medications and 
I thought a lot about this, and the, the reason why is because that is something that, in my experience, you're, you're pretty good at. Like, you know your way around an SSRI, and I could come back and give a whole talk about benzodiazepines, although the spoiler alert is going to be like, no, thank you. But there's also kind of a more philosophical answer. In psychiatry, like, yes, we do use medications for anxiety, um, but a lot of the time that's just not really the answer. It seems like the answer, but it's not the answer. Um, and so it, it's kind of like if you if you'll hang in with me for a bit of a metaphor, it's kind of like you're on a boat and like you're there and somebody falls off and, and like your first temptation, they, they like reach out and they're like, please help me. And you're like temptation is to like offer them your hand and like and then what? And then you like they kind of like pull really hard and they like pull you in because when people are drowning, they'll pull really hard. But actually, like, what's more effective is to like toss out a life preserver because it, it helps them and it also keeps you safe. And so if we apply that logic to anxiety, like when people are really anxious, they're going to pull desperately. And your job is to be a good lifeguard. You, you, I want you to be able to be present and be helpful, but avoid the temptation of the easy pull. So, so today I'm taking us into, into the rough seas. We're going to go beyond medication. I want to help. I'm going to suggest that what we're going to do is help people kind of figure out what's actually going on a bit to help kind of determine. And then I also want you to have some concrete things that you can say uh, when people want that hand of yours. So we're going to go through three major topics today. First, we're going to talk about normal versus pathologic anxiety. We're going to talk about different types. And then lastly, we're going to talk about interacting with people who are actually anxious. I'm starting us here because I want to make sure that when we talk about this topic, we're talking about the same thing. Because, I mean, if you're sitting there and you're like, well, I'm pretty anxious right now, like, am I okay? I mean, maybe, but I mean, probably actually. But, but my point is like, we all have anxiety, right? And it almost seems silly to start with like, what is anxiety? Because like, you're a normal person who's a alive right now in this time, and you're in the medical profession. And so you absolutely know what anxiety is. And still, I, I, I want to be on the same page. So anxiety in the general context is worry. It's thinking about the past or it's thinking about the future. It's thinking about yourself or the, the world kind of at large. Anxiety we can define as uh, this combination. It's, uh, it's psychological, it's in your thoughts, it's physiologic, it's this reaction that you have in your body. It's behavioral, like people do things when they're anxious. Uh, it's a it's a state that we can actually pretty reliably induce in animals with a threat to your well-being or survival. And that can actually be, they can be like an actual threat to your well-being or even just the potential threat. It includes things like increased arousal, increased expectancy, autonomic neuroendocrine activation, and like really specific behaviors that happen pretty predictably. And the, the function, the goal of all of this is to help you cope, right, with whatever the kind of, of adverse or unexpected situation is. It's, it's a, it's a helpful mechanism. And for most people, 
anxiety is a really necessary part of your daily life. Um, in this lecture, we're not going to get into the neurobiology and structures, but suffice to say that anxiety is mapped to pretty well-defined anatomical pathways in our brain. And there's like a, I mean, there's fundamentally a biologic basis for this entity. Um, anxiety is also pretty reproducible. When I teach primarily medical students, uh, we we watch this video together and we sit like just being anxious, all biting our nails for like five minutes. It's it's great, but it, it's it's predictable. You can sort of imagine what will make people anxious. Or if you want a, a slight a slightly different definition of anxiety, we could call it a cognitive thinking, affective uh, feeling structure within our defensive and motivational system. And really it's this at the heart of anxiety is a sense of uncontrollability based on possible threats. And this is really in contrast to fear where the danger is present and imminent. So like Dr. Barlow was saying, it's worth differentiating for a second and pausing on this distinction because I think sometimes what we think of as anxiety is actually fear. Fear is a motivational state and it's brought on by really specific stimuli that also give rise to defensive behaviors or kind of escape. Animals tend to learn to fear situations where they've previously been exposed to pain or stress. Uh, and then after that happens, animals show avoidant behavior when they re-encounter that situation. And also, animals have an innate fear. Young animals that haven't been exposed to aversive stimuli also have typically have an innate fear reaction to things like sudden noises, uh, changes in the environment like bright lights, um, but they also become pretty rapidly habituated to them. When they're used to this environment, uh, the fear of novelty uh, um, uh, tends to dissipate. Um, so let's give a more specific example. Let's say you were walking down Burnside Avenue in central Portland and it's 2 a.m. as you do usually and then you see this lion and suddenly your body kind of goes into this fight, flight, freeze sort of mode and we could go through the various things that are coursing through your bloodstream but that would be a good thing, right? Like you would want your body to be able to respond and so in general fear, a fear response is not always bad. In fact, it's often pretty helpful because if we if we didn't have fear, we couldn't sort of protect ourselves. Um, or to put this a little bit more bluntly, the difference between we might summarize the difference between fear and anxiety like this. We might say fear as when you're looking and you see a lion. Fear is different from anxiety because fear has an object. There's something in front of us and we typically the threat is is proportionate to the, the 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 thing that's in front of us. Anxiety typically lacks an object and that by that I mean it's not that there's something it's not something that you are afraid of. You can be afraid of spiders, but often the fear of spiders happens whether or not there's a spider in front of you. So to go back to, I know I'm mixing my animals here, but if you worry about getting eaten by a lion when you're standing in front of a lion, that's adaptive, that's normal. If you start to be cautious about being 
around open savannas because you once saw a lion there, that's probably learning. If you spend all day and all night thinking about lions and you stay up late and then you don't go near the savanna and you don't get food and then you perish, that's too much. That's pathologic. And so that's all like well and good, but I'm going to take us into talking kind of about real life. I also recognize that I'm talking about lions kind of facetiously here, but I do see a, a direct parallel with traumatic events, right? If you've been assaulted, if you've had cancer, if you've lost your sense of bodily integrity or, or sense about the future, if you've watched a loved one go through this, in short, like if you've experienced pain, it's reasonable, it's normal to avoid things, to avoid having this happen again. And and in some ways, to what I'm, I guess I'm trying to say is anxiety is a normal human emotion. The future is inherently uncertain. Even as medical professionals, we're not the authority about what will or won't happen. But still, I think we are being charged with, and, and I think we can help people discern what is normal and what is pathological. So with that in mind, I want to take us into talking about some of the types of anxiety that we do see. As you'll remember, to take us back into a little bit of our psychiatry, in psychiatry, we categorize the major illnesses into a few big buckets, and this is one of our big categories. There's a bunch of illnesses that fall under anxiety and we're going to talk about some of them but knowing that we all have like i just said some anxiety what makes people some people's anxiety abnormal right like why do some people just have anxiety and some people have anxiety disorders and in general my sense is this anxiety becomes a disorder when either it's happening at a greater intensity or duration that you might expect when it's starting really starting to disrupt activities due to avoidance when it's really causing you an impairment or a disability and just as a reminder even though we think of anxiety as a really kind of head space the reality is that a lot of people experience anxiety really physically in their body and so I do tend to think when I think about the impairment that's causing people, it's not just avoidance necessarily, but things like not sleeping, not being able to concentrate, dragging all day, feeling like you, you're, you have all these things that are happening in your body that you can't figure out why. That is a source of disability and impairment as well. The other thing that I would describe is as we think about the impairment, that anxiety, I would posture that we think of anxiety disorders as chronic conditions, right? Where, where these circuits get turned up or turned down based on the stressful things in your life. And when we think about this anxiety this way, in this kind of lifelong pattern, we, we can tend to look for the ups and the downs and not just sort of treat a crisis, but more the kind of chronic underlying symptoms that actually tend to kind of prepare a person's life. It's not dissimilar to how we think about major depressive disorder, right? Where you have episodes of depression, you have remissions where things are getting better and then relapses. As you absolutely know, and I don't need to show you old data to prove this, 
the National Institute of Mental Health tells us that anxiety is very prevalent. These are some old data and things have certainly been confounded by the last two and a half years of our lives. But before all of the world started melting down, we used to say that about 20%, 18% of adults probably have a, a experience of anxiety, a diagnosable anxiety disorder in a 12 month period um, with much higher lifetime prevalences. This, is, this ends up being fairly severe for a subset of those folks. Um, the, um, you know, when we look at things epidemiologically, uh, when people who identify as women uh, tend to have a higher lifetime prevalence of anxiety disorders than people who identify as men, although I do think that there's things that likely contribute to some of those data. The average onset of anxiety being 11 years old, I think just also goes to underscore the, the lifetime nature of this. I think there are things in our lives that cause us to feel anxious. And when I think about an anxiety disorder, I tend to think about something that's pretty pervasive over the course of somebody's lifetime. This slide used to have a note that said that folks who identified as Hispanic or as black were less likely than folks who identified as non-Hispanic white to experience anxiety disorder in their life. I've been looking recently and actually could not find much data that supported that. And a lot of the older data is pretty severely impaired by confounds, including access to mental health care, bias, and, and honestly, some pretty outright discrimination historically and likely and not likely, absolutely ongoing in the field of mental health. I also think that there's probably some real differences in the types of anxiety that people experience. And I also think that broad strokes, this is true in other domains, things like gender and ability. What we do know is that the majority of people who experience anxiety and anxiety disorders receive care in, a, in the primary care setting rather than in specialty mental health clinics. And uh, even beyond that, only a small fraction of people with anxiety receive any treatment to target their symptoms. Sometimes people wonder, you know, like, is this actually anxiety disorder? Is there not? And I think that in general, I assume you're investigating. I'm not going to really get into the nitty gritty of this, although we can certainly talk about it. I ask things about other medications and substances and physical considerations, of course, um, other health conditions we know um, can contribute to things with rates of anxiety, for instance, being particularly increased in um, conditions like COPD, asthma, um, post stroke, Parkinson's. Um, the DSM is this, you know, book that we look to in psychiatry to help us define some of these things. There's a lot of anxiety disorders and the classification changed a little bit when we adopted the DSM-5. According to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, um, anxiety disorders commonly have features which include things like excessive fear and anxiety, behavioral disturbances. The most common ones are in bold, things like generalized anxiety, panic, agoraphobia, um, and some of our phobias. In the DSM-5, obsessive compulsive disorders and post-traumatic or stress disorders are no longer actually technically considered anxiety disorders as they previously were. They're their own category now. 
But what I also know is that you have a very short amount of time. Um, so what I want to help us do is differentiate quickly. Not that you are, I expect, or even, you know, want, although I think you probably are adept at sort of differentiating some of these things, but the treatment of these different conditions is a little bit different. And some of our response to these different conditions is different. And so I do find it helpful to have a working sense in my mind of what some of the main drivers or what some of the flavor of anxiety that a person has, because I find that helpful as I conceptualize them a bit. So what I'm trying to, let's, let's work on sort of differentiating some of these really quickly. The questions I typically ask people when I'm trying to sort of hone in on which anxiety disorder they're having is, is this like a specific fear? Sometimes that's the easiest thing to differentiate. Is there something really specifically that you're worried about? I ask people when they feel the most anxious, how long the anxiety is lasting for, you know, the various provoking and ameliorating factors. And then, like we said, one of the big things, and I think sometimes that we don't often do enough, is people describe feeling anxious. And then I want to know what, what problems that's causing them. And sometimes that helps us differentiate a disorder versus not. Or if we wanted to look at this in more of a flow chart sort of way, we could look like this. Uh, and we could say that sort of a basic assessment could help you determine which anxiety disorders are present. Um, as well as what other conditions, things like depression, pain, substance abuse. Um, I also typically ask people what treatments they've tried. And I also ask people what they expect, what, um, what they anticipate from treatment. It's, I'm, I'm absolutely recognizing that in a brief time, I'm not, I don't think it's practical to do a comprehensive psychiatric interview. But sometimes asking sort of a single question in each of the four most common anxiety disorders is pretty quick and usually fairly sensitive. Things like, uh, have you had intrusive thoughts or compulsive actions that you didn't want and that felt kind of foreign? That's OCD. Have you had attacks where all of a sudden you felt unbearably anxious and thought things might even, you might even die? That tends to be panic. Have you just been feeling, not just, have you been feeling bothered by a sense of like anxiety or feeling on edge for more than six months, generalized anxiety disorder, feeling anxious or uncomfortable around other people, tends to be more of a social quality. And again, I say this because these different things both have somewhat different treatments. And I think not just for our diagnostic sake, but sometimes for individuals, it's helpful to have a sense of what's going on with me. So instead of just knowing I'm an anxious person, if I know, for instance, that I have a specific phobia, then I can start to learn more about this myself. And sometimes even just knowing what's happening is helpful. One of the biggest fears that people tell me and often don't tell me that what they have when they go and see a doctor is that the doctor is going to tell them that they're going crazy. And sometimes having a specific sense of what's going on um, is, is a helpful way to ground people uh, in this sort of morass that they tend to find themselves in. And so from here, I want to transition a little bit into thinking about interacting with people who are anxious. Because in my experience, this is tough and we don't get taught this particularly well in medical school 
I think we've probably developed strategies and ways to manage this, but it's a challenging thing to do. I'm not going to pretend that in this talk we're going to teach you to be a psychotherapist. Um, and, and frankly, I don't think that's reasonable. There, there are what there. Um, I mean, there are strategies, you know, like there are methods about talk therapy and uh, evidence based treatments to help people understand and frankly treat their anxiety with quite a bit of evidence behind them. But they take a lot of time to learn and do correctly. Um, and they take a lot of time to use in an appointment. And so I what I my hope is to do here is to distill down some of the highlights, some of the things that I learned in psychotherapy training from a few different modalities that I think could be helpful. And maybe what we'll start with doing is by, I guess I want us to look a little bit internally because this is somewhat about patients, but it's also somewhat about ourselves. Are there things that we're doing that are influencing the interaction, are there things that we're doing that can change, right? We can't change other people, but we can change ourselves. So I guess the question I might ask you is, what is your own reaction to anxiety? Are you somebody who tends to worry? Do you like stress? Does it bother you? Or maybe thinking about this a different way, how do you tend to react when friends or family tell you about their problems? And the spoiler is that it's possible, most likely, that you'll behave similarly with patients. I mean, the likelihood that you are a medical professional, you are in this setting. And so in some ways, anxiety and stress has propelled you, right? It has gotten you to this place. There's no way to get through board exams without some anxiety, right? It, it motivates you. Um, and there's ways that we've managed to deal with anxiety, but I found that especially for medical professionals, our own ability to manage anxiety can sometimes come off as a little bit cold or dismissive to other people. And, and the reality is there's no right or wrong ways to react, but the better that you know your own natural style, the better you can tell when it's coming out with the patients that you're seeing. And, as a reminder, in psychiatry, this is what we call countertransference. Um, and, and to the extent that's possible, it's it's going to be important to keep yourself in check, at least sometimes. So, I, I mean, I guess perhaps by, if I can give a little bit of personal disclosure, I work here in the emergency room. I see a lot of people every day. And when I see somebody check in to our front desk with a chief complaint of, anxiety and a, you know I quickly start opening their chart and scan through and I can see that they've already tried medications I start to get a little bit nervous I'm I'm defensive I'm like you know wondering if I'm going to have anything that's going to be helpful I get kind of wary uh, I worry that they're going to ask me for something that I'm not going to be able to give them and then they're going to be mad at me and I'm going to have to call security I, I mean I, I I know this about myself and so it, it may sound kind of fundamental but I usually, I mean, again, just going back to myself, I usually stand in the triage area. I take a moment to breathe. I reground myself in the framework where we're in. There's some things I can change. There's some things I can't change. And no matter what, we're just two humans sitting in a room. 
as are you. And sometimes you're there uh, and you're talking with somebody about how they're doing or how their anxiety is or what they're thinking and things just blow up in your face. Um, this happens with me. You, I hope, are smiling. I can't see you. I can't see our teams live, but you are, have had an encounter with a patient and you thought things were going fine and then they just take this turn and it feels like there's nothing you can say that's going to get them to say that they are not feeling nervous or not anxious or that everything's just going to be fine. Um, I see this happen. I also observe a lot of interviews with um, medical students and residents and our social work students and I see this blow up for people all the time. So what I want to do in the next section of this talk is give us some strategies. I want to talk about four things, four pitfalls perhaps that I see happen and what you might do to avoid them. Going in, I'm just going to preface this a little bit. I, we've never even met, but I think you're an excellent medical provider. I think that some of these things you're doing naturally, and I hope, I'm not, I promise that I'm not trying to tell you that you're not doing these things or you can't do them. What I do want to do is give you a gentle reminder. Even the best doctors think that they're being great and often we could do this way more. I could do this a lot more. I'm professionally paid to do this and I could do all of these four strategies far more. There's pressures that are truly outside of you that are inherent to medicine, practicing in a modern environment with the we could go on. I'm not going to get on that soapbox, but there's things that are outside of you that are causing it to be fundamentally challenging. And so I hope that I can use this time as a gentle nudge and reminder and perhaps some concrete strategies. Let's get into it. The first pitfall that I see people fall into is insufficient validation or what I'm going to just suggest of you is what I call sharp listening. Because the reality is that for normative anxiety, listening is truly enough. There are people and you can truly just listen to them and things will get better. In fact, for most people. But the key is you, you do have to listen. <laughs> you actually have to listen in a way that is specific. And these are the four things uh, that I want you to be doing. Repeating back, seeking clarification, validating, and normalizing. And you're like, yes, I'm doing these things, and you are doing these things, I know. But listening is really hard, and I promise that you cannot active listen enough. You will feel silly. You will feel like you are saying things that are inane and dumb, but it's it's helpful because listening just to just to say, step back and let me give you some examples of these things. But listening is you listen so that you can respond appropriately. And, and this is active listening, right? I differentiate it from a dialogue because it's not really about you or what you know. It's real active listening is a tool. You are using yourself as a tool to help this other person process their thoughts. And that's a little bit different than the way that fundamentally we're taught to, to interact with people. 
sometimes people are like, OK, yeah, I know I should be active listening, but I just actually don't know what to say when this person's coming in. There's like really ramped up. So let's get some examples. Repeat back. This person's like, I'm never going to get out of this hospital. And you literally repeat back what they've said to you. You're worried that you are never going to leave this hospital. Use really similar language. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just repeat back what you heard. It helps people feel grounded like they you have heard what they have to say and they don't need to keep telling you because you get it. In this case, the, the provider is also naming an emotion, which is worry, which is also a useful technique. OK, repeat back. See clarification. And then she left me and I was all alone. And you seek some clarification like how how are you feeling about this? And in this case, we're not really using this in this question to like gain gain much. It, it may not actually matter how the person was feeling about this, but what it's doing is it's sort of demonstrating engagement. You're here with this person. You're paying attention to them. I also ask questions uh, if I'm confused, like I, I genuinely wasn't sure how they were feeling about it, but sometimes I'm just helping the person flesh out the who, what, where, when about the situation, because I think sometimes saying things out loud helps the sort of Tetris pieces settle down in people's minds. Validation. When you are validating somebody, sometimes it's hard to know what to say, especially if they're saying things that are totally unreasonable, like you're never going to help me. And you can say things that are sometimes just simple words like wow or um, or that's just a lot to deal with or or I can see why you'd be frustrated by this or this is just this is really upsetting. And I think that this is a way when people are struggling that, that you can recognize the distress that they're in. And just as a reminder, validating a person's concern doesn't necessarily validate the distortion that they're experiencing, right? So, you know, and this person that's like, you're never gonna let me out of the hospital or, you know, I'm never gonna get better. You don't really have to agree or disagree about whether you're gonna let them out of the hospital or whether they are or are not going to get better. It's not really about the fact of the matter. It's often about the distress that they're in. You know, when the person's like, you know, I'm never gonna get better, you can say like, this is that, that would be really this is really scary or, or that's a lot to deal with or I can see how nervous you are about this. Sometimes it's just nice to have another person say some of these things out loud. And an example, for instance, uh, you know, no one ever listens to me. You could say something like that is has to be so frustrating or upsetting or it is so hard to not be listened to. I, I don't think you have to get caught up in identifying like the right emotion. It, it won't like derail the conversation if you get it right. Like if you said, it sounds like you're feeling pretty angry right now and they're not, and then that wasn't it. And they say, no, actually I'm more embarrassed. They'll keep talking, but it's, it's better to identify emotion and have them keep talking than to kind of say nothing at all.
and the um, the last thing I would say in terms of active listening is is to normalize, to to ground people in this world. You know, you can say things like that makes a lot of sense. Or when I've talked to other people going through whatever you're they're going through, they've described it just like you have. And I think this is a way as clinicians that you can both help people sort of like feel more like they have their feet on the ground grounded. But also you can use your expertise. You are you are here offering your your knowledge and and experience to help people. I don't mean to suggest that as a physician you can't do anything. I also would recognize before we move on to our next category that these things are challenging. And one of the most common responses I hear is like, I don't have time to do all of these things, right? I don't have time to repeat all these things back. I do think that's true. I think that these things can be said really quickly. And again, I don't want to launch you into a whole psychotherapy session. What I do find is that sometimes saying some of these things actually can diffuse a tense situation and make things go faster. I think it can actually make the interaction go, go more smoothly and gets more buy-in from this person and therefore helps you move um, through your day. Not that the point of people is to move through your day, but if things can feel less charged and less antagonistic, it's helpful. Okay, we said the first strategy uh, was sharp listening. The second issue I see people sometimes fall into is, um, is trying to fix things. So the strategy here is to first agree, then problem solve. So let's let's use an example outside of the doctor's office. Let's say your sink was leaking, and so you call the plumber. The plumber comes, they start listening to you as you're talking about what you're doing, and then partway through your explanation, they just start disassembling your water heater. I mean, maybe that's right, but maybe it's not. And either way, it doesn't seem right, and so you probably have lost your trust in their ability. And so for them to get you back on board would take some kind of backtracking or repair. And so the strategy here is mutual identification of a problem. Or I want to point to a, a somewhat visual model. Uh, or I, sometimes I see conversations going like this. Somebody's like, you know, I always get nervous before I have to give a presentation. And then the provider says, well, yeah, we could start a beta blocker. And you're you're not wrong, right? That, that, that may be the actual outcome that you want, but you're missing a chance for connection and for some buy-in. This is a model that I heard from the folks at the University of Minnesota, and I really like it. I think about it a lot. It's called the interview arc. So this is this is, I think, will feel very, you'll you will get this very quickly. I'm gonna move through this fast. This is an arc. This models every single human interaction between two people across time forever. What happens is you start and you start by gathering information. Uh, you will know that you're here when you um, when you're sort of when you're gathering things. This could be like you talking to a patient and they're telling you about their UTI symptoms. This could be like you go in and you're like, I'm here to pick up my dry cleaning. They're just, or the, the person's like, what are you here for? And you're like dry cleaning and you're like gathering information. At some point, there has to be some resolution. You have to like move towards some kind of planning, right? And you're like, all right, well, here's some macrobid or they're like, here's your sweater. But you have to, you, there, there is some eventual resolution. 
the key here is this point. This is the point of mutual agreement. You will know that you are here when you see sort of cues. These could be verbal cues like people saying like, yes, that is right, or nonverbal cues like people nodding, making more eye contact. What this does is you, you are like offering this up. So let me give you an example of this. Um, you might say something like, based on what you're describing, you have more than everyday worry. It sounds like you could have an anxiety disorder. Can I tell you more about that and what our treatment options could be? You don't have to literally say these words, but what this person has done here is sort of summarize the information that they've gathered and gently moved into treatment planning. Sometimes I see people moving a little bit too fast left to right, or what we call a type one error, what I call what the folks in Minnesota call a type one error, where you move from gathering information to just coming up with a treatment plan. You've probably experienced this. You've gone to see a doctor, they're like, all right, and here's what we're gonna do. And you're like, oh, wait, I was still kind of actually telling you about something. Um, the other type of error you can make is a type two error. This I typically see um, in folks who are still in training and you move from treatment planning. You're like, all right, and we're going to get a mammogram. Oh, wait, by the way, do you drink alcohol? And you move back into gathering information uh, and it can feel kind of disjointed. Um, the goal here is to move your conversation in a way where you first agree, then problem solve. It helps people feel like you're on the same page. Moving along, third. Third is um, about rational arguments. I call this getting beyond your brain. When that person says, I just know that my neighbor hates me. And then the other person says, how did you hate you? You just moved in. That may be true and that may be a good rational argument, but it typically doesn't help somebody feel less nervous. And so, okay, a different example. Somebody's like, I just know that I'm going to have a panic attack when I get on the bus. I need to take something for it. And then the writer says, well, you ride the bus all the time and you're fine. Both these things are being offered in the spirit of comfort. But as you know, telling people to not worry does not, in fact, make people not worry. In fact, what it usually does is cause a sense of isolation, like this person sort of feels more alone because now they don't have anyone to help. What I might do is I would suggest avoid substituting sort of your sense of what's reasonable or what's the right thing to do for the patient. Because again, from a psychological perspective, it, it tends to create a sense of antagonism, which then leads to this sort of shame, avoidant, interpersonal distance. Um, I would also add just on a historic note that um, often this has been a way for sort of dominant cultures to sort of dictate what is acceptable or the right thing to do uh, and to sort of led other, it's created a sort of system of oppression. Instead, what I might suggest is that we help sort of try, try and sort of imagine where this person's coming from. Again, it may be totally apart from your reality. We just have to accept that people's reality is the reality. Um, and to validate the distress that they're in. So as an alternative, this person's like, I know that I'm gonna have a panic attack on the bus. And the provider says something like, I bet it's scary to even imagine that. And if you want, we could think of a plan ahead of time. Like, what would you want to do in that situation? And this, I like this response because it does three things. One, 
it's accepting that this is possible. It's that, that this is within the realm of possibility and that it demonstrates that you're there with them and that you're kind of implying that there's hope um, and you're indicating that they can actually take the lead in this situation. It empowers people. OK, fourth, the fourth one is is identifying. When somebody says something like, I'm just really overwhelmed with everything that's going on, and then I hear somebody say something like, I know what you're going through. Uh, this is also usually being offered in the spirit of comfort, but anxiety psychologically is a fundamentally, fundamentally like pretty isolating process. And the reality is that most of the time you, you don't get it. And even if you've had very similar experiences, you've only heard this like snippet of what's going on. So in this kind of doctor patient interaction, was saying things like, I get even even basic things like I get it or I know what you mean, has this real tendency to kind of shine a spotlight on you. And so what people often do is they tend not to feel heard. And so they'll they may just kind of stop disclosing what they're thinking or and I see this a lot. They, they're going to tell you more to make sure that you actually understand. You're like, OK, and so, so then they're like, see what see what happened was. And then she said and then I said and you're like, no, no, I get it. I, I get it. And so this is another way that sometimes using a little bit of kind of verbal. A few verbal tactics can sort of help avoid people needing to tell you more things. It can actually speed things along. So. When somebody says something like I'm really overwhelmed with everything that's going on, you might say something like. I've only heard a little bit and I can imagine how overwhelming it must be. This acknowledges that you haven't heard anything, everything and you don't need them to tell you everything, but you get it. Or you might say something like I, I couldn't even pretend to fully understand, but I can really help tell how hard you're trying to deal with the situation. I think that there is such a thing as therapeutic disclosure. It, it is OK to have to be a real person and to talk about your life. It tends to come with longer relationships and some of you have long relationships with patients, but that's why it feels really different when you relate to a good friend of yours versus like the TSA agent. Like these things just feel different. You're allowed to be a real person. I'm just urging a little bit of caution, especially at first. I tend to disclose really specific pieces of information it, kind of infrequently, honestly, and usually kind of obliquely. So I might say something like if somebody said this to me, I may say something like I'm familiar with that feeling. So I'm not saying I'm familiar with the experience that they're in, but like I get the feeling or something like that resonates with me again to highlight that. I, it, it's something that's within my sphere of awareness, um, but it's really like still where they're at. I stick with me here because I want to leave you with one last metaphor from one of my psychotherapy supervisor. I'll end because the, the, in this metaphor, um, this pa the pa a patient, your patient, is in a forest. It's a nice forest. Uh, but it's kind of misty and it's a little bit hard to see what's coming up. And so your job with patients with anxiety is to be a guide. 
not a savior, but you are somebody who's had years of training and experience being in the woods. Maybe not this woods, but like some pretty tough woods that you've seen. And even though at the end of the day, these aren't your woods to get out of, um, you're, you want to be helpful. And so given all of that, if you were a person, if, if this, your patient is stuck in the woods, imagine that you as a doctor said something like, I know that this forest is dark, it's scary. Anyone would be nervous in this forest. And really, honestly, neither of us know what's coming up ahead, but I've done this with other people. I know what kind of trees these are. And if you want, I'll walk with you and, and we can do this together. It's a pretty powerful thing to have and have experience with. This is a real Carl Rogers type approach. And I think that is something that we can do um, and I think it can be helpful. Today, we talked about normal versus pathologic anxiety. We talked about differentiating a little bit types of anxiety. And we talked about in some ways interacting with people with anxiety. We talked about sharp listening. We talked about agreeing before problem solving. We talked about getting beyond your brain and not making rational arguments. And then we talked about a little bit personally identifying and the way of sort of helping people through the trees. So with that, I'm going to end here. My name is James. Uh, you're welcome to contact me with any questions. Um, and I'm happy to take some questions now. Great, James. Thank you so much for that talk, Dr. COVID, um, particularly for the approach of giving us some, some universal tools um, to apply. I'm sure we'll have some comments and questions um, come across, and I'll start us off um, perhaps with just a couple. Um, early in the talk, um, you acknowledge that often anxiety is experienced um, as physical symptoms, um, including one that caught my eye was fatigue. Um, certainly as an internist and a PCP, patients often seek our guidance for physical symptoms. Um, I wondered if you could speak a little to strategies for pivoting to open the window for a diagnosis of an anxiety disorder. Any thoughts or strategies there? Absolutely, this is such a good question. And I bet it comes up frequently. One of the things that I will do with folks is, you know, we'll start with some basic labs like you're doing, right? Like you've obtained a CBC and a comp panel uh, and things look good. And I think sometimes I'll say to people, hey, we've got these blood tests and they show us that things are healthy inside your body, you know, that your red blood cells are normal and your salt levels are normal. And that's a good thing. We, we, um, we're looking, we're trying to figure out what's causing you to feel so tired. And we, we can be really glad that it's not one of these things, but there are some other things too. And one of them can be living with a lot of stress. Sometimes I'll, uh, I'll describe for people, I am a big metaphor person, and I'll describe for people the tachometer on their car, uh, the like the, the how hard your engine's revving. And I'll say, you know, when your engine's revving like really hard for this long, 
the car like can do it for some amount of time, but then it just starts to get kind of worn down. And I'm wondering if some of that could be happening for you and your body is feeling tired because of all of the stress or worry that you're experiencing right now. Sometimes I think that's an opening to both acknowledge that you've thought about other things that could be going on. You're glad that it's not one of those scary bad things, but also that their anxiety is real. Yeah, thank you. Um, one question, um, do these strategies um, work differently with children? Gosh, I, I wish I was sitting there in front of you because I'd be like, I, I don't know, what do you think? I've worked a bunch with kids. I did gen peds before I switched to psychiatry. I would say absolutely. I think that adults do a lot of problem solving around kids. And I think sometimes it's nice just to like be in existence with kids. You know, we're both looking at something that's kind of odd or unusual or potentially scary. And just to acknowledge that this situation is scary. When I work with kids, I do a lot of naming of emotions and I say things like, you're feeling really excited right now, or you're feeling maybe nervous right now. Um, and I think one of the things that we can do for kids is to help them first identify what's going on and then think about like what they might want to do to solve the problem. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Um, here's another question that has come through. Um, how do you deal with a patient that is culturally, linguistically, or intellectually different from yourself to understand your line of communication um, where it's clear to you anxiety seems to be at play, but there are challenges to the communication being on the same page? Sure, mm. question resonates with you, I can try to reword <laughs> or take your own yeah. interpretation. Sure. I mean, I'm hearing a couple of things in there and and you're welcome to sub, to to follow up if I'm if I'm not getting at what you're asking. I'm hearing two things. I think that different people uh, for lots of reasons have different understandings of what anxiety is. And I will absolutely acknowledge that the the way that you know this DSM has defined these disorders and conditions is, you know, largely based, you know, in the tradition of uh, white, mostly male people who wrote the DSM. And so it is absolutely, I, I don't think that it encompasses the experience of humanity. In fact, I think it, it tends to ignore people's real life experiences. I think one thing that I do sometimes say to people is, you know, I, I acknowledge like I can't possibly imagine being in your shoes or experiencing the things that you're experiencing right now. But I typically use a fair amount of repeat back and I say like what I'm hearing from you is you're experiencing you're having trouble sleeping. You think a lot about your job before you go into work and sometimes you've gotten so nervous that you haven't even gone to work. And I'm wondering like do you think that that's can we agree like that seems like a problem for you? And then I'll say to people, you know, like based on my training, I think that this might be an anxiety condition um, and I think that we may be able to help you with it and people may disagree and that's OK. I, I would hate to say that, like, you know, our take has to be the right take, uh, but I do think that sometimes 
we can agree about specific problems they're having, if not the overall diagnosis. Thank you. That's helpful to remind coming to that common ground of agreement on the situation before launching into treatment. Um, I wondered if you have any particular um, thoughts, perhaps pitfalls that you see um, in diagnostic errors. I appreciate you acknowledging that we have limited time and to some extent limited training. Um, but I wonder if we have a tendency to label generalized anxiety disorder um, and, and launch into treatments for that. Um, do you tend to see common examples where maybe miss the diagnosis? Yeah, I do. I think that's a good question. I think that you know, the easiest thing or the most common thing is generalized anxiety disorders. So if you find yourself diagnosing yeah, fairly often, it's it may not be inherently problematic. It may just be the most common anxiety disorder. At the same time, I do think that um, we probably have a tendency to over attribute things to generalized anxiety and and sort of the the real stress that is in people's. We may conflate stress with or stressful circumstances with an anxiety disorder. They can both be pretty functionally impairing. Um, and yet anxiety disorders typically occur even when people don't have overwhelming life stressors. Like we were talking about, they tend to be pretty lifelong conditions. I'll ask people like what their, you know, how things were as a kid, if they remember being anxious as a kid. And I'll often hear things like, I was the kid who, you know, was always nauseous before I went to school, or I was the kid who refused to go to picture day because I didn't want to have my picture taken for no good reason. I just didn't want to do it. I was the kid who like didn't have anyone touch my yearbook because I was too nervous about talking to other kids. I typically see a long course of things and often that that can point me into things. I the other thing that that can help you do is is in the absence of that remind people that the situation that they're in, you know, if they say I'm just really stressed right now and my car broke and my marriage is ending and I just lost my job and you're like, yes, you know, this is real. Like this is absolutely happening for you. And and I often will tell people, I don't think you're going crazy. I don't think you're making this up. I don't think this is just in your head. I think this is a real amount of stress and anyone would be experiencing this. And that normalization can be really helpful for folks. So that was an expansion. We talked a little about GAD, um, but I, I do see that sometimes coming into play. Great, thank you so much. I want to acknowledge that we're right at the top of the hour at nine o'clock. Um, Dr. Kovit, thank you so much for your time and your expertise. Y'all are so welcome. Thank you so much, y'all.